Good afternoon. This is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios. This is a podcast for Sunday, the 18th of April, 2021. We are now starting to lay down pretty strong foundations for our discussion of the aging process in humans and how it leads to morbidity and mortality. I've spent a great deal of time discussing the immune system, discussing epigenetic phenomena, and then over the last several weeks, we've done cellular pathophysiology as well as pathobiochemistry relative to lipid metabolism, carbohydrate, and indeed protein degradation, utilization of amino acids and bioenergetics. Uh, we've also gone through, I think, a good series of discussions of basic cellular phenomena, such as lipoprotein metabolism, the beta-oxidation of fatty acids, a transamination of amino acids, so that we can understand the regulation of the tricarboxylic acid cycle, the electron transport chain, as well as oxidative phosphorylation, mitochondrially associated, all the way to discussions of cell fate, such as apoptosis, necrotosis, ferritosis, and indeed autophagy. And that led us into, I think, a good series of discussions on oncogenesis. And from oncogenesis, we also discussed the autoimmune response. Throughout these lectures, starting back in the fall of uh, 2020, I've been trying to give you the um, major components of what I believe to be a trigonal planar understanding of the aging process, therefore applying my dialectical event ontology, that particular uh, means by which a transcendental so that we can study a specific process. And the process here is aging, particularly human aging. So today I'm laying down a stronger foundational network on how the immune system seems to be a very important process that alters throughout the lifespan of the human. And those changes, those alterations lead to multiple modifications of not just genes expressed, but the epigenome. That is the way the genes exp are expressed and the timing of their expression and which go silent and which are overproduced because of changes in methylation and acetylation pattern at the covalent modification level of either cohering co um, histones associated with chromatin, therefore altering chromatin remodeling. We talk, and then how those modifications we had discussed can lead to either euchromatin or heterochromatin reorganization and therefore leading to a massive increase in gene expression that can be focused and directed depending on internal and external stress phenomena. All of that leading to increases in reactive oxygen, potentials for mutations within the DNA, and then carrying forward those mutations by altering gene expression, which is the epigenetic signature. So histone modifications, covalent histone modification, of course, also cytosine modifications, such as methylation, which tends to suppress gene expression. Um, if, it's if it's a heavily methylated 
CPG island that acts near a promoter region of genes that otherwise would be stochastically expressed or indeed even specifically expressed um, for such things as stress phenomena uh, linked to the immune response. So with that um, constellation of discussions, I'm going to today lay down that foundation um, with a little bit more um, hammer and nails so that we have, a, I think, a process from which we can move forward. So consider this to be the front part of the long arc of lectures I plan on doing now to put together the aging phenomenon in humans. So um, with all of that as a prolegomena, let me get started. Uh, last time, um, uh, several lectures ago, but it wasn't that long ago, I was talking about the fact that aging is marked by progressive decline in the function of multiple tissue and cell lineages, and that in some organs, and, and indeed in the organism humans, there are renewable cells, but there are also cells and tissues that do not renew very well at all. Consider, for example, the central nervous system. Now, we can get neurogenesis in the CNS, but the neurons that are generated ex post facto to, let's say, a neurodegenerative program or to an ischemic phenomenon such as a stroke, uh, because of oxygen deprivation, those new neurons don't necessarily have the same connections. In fact, they very likely will not have the same connections to the neuronal network that makes up that subcompartment or nuclei of the central nervous system of the individual, such as those neurons no longer function correctly to fire because they're wired together because of the vagaries of space and time leading to specific signatures of action potentials that lead to thought processes. Now that just in the central nervous system. Of course, this can occur throughout the periphery of the body. So I want you to keep in mind that idea, right? <clears throat> because that really describes why aging occurs. You know, the evolutionary theories that we've talked about are saying that aging is a consequence of declining forces of natural selection. It's one way of looking at it. We talked about intrinsic and extrinsic hazards. Intrinsic would be things like modifications of gene expression, the overproduction of pro-inflammatory cytokines or the lack of production of pro-inflammatory cytokines, the alteration of tailoring of neuronal connections, the hundreds and hundreds of millions of connections that are in the central nervous system, or the lack of appropriate action potential after the correct stimulus, that is a change in membrane polarization. And the extrinsic hazards are also a plenum. They're accidents, and they can include things like uh, parasitism and predation and starvation and infection of potentially pathogenic organisms or pathogens that are not organisms themselves, such as viruses. All of this can, of course, limit the lifespan of species, particularly heterotrophs like humans. And that would then tend to deplete natural populations and removing older individuals. 
there are generally fewer older individuals or older survivors on which natural selection would tend to act at those older ages. And that's because we tend to eliminate uh, alleles or whole, uh, whole gene clusters that would have a necessarily late-acting deleterious effect. It's especially true for genes that confer early life benefits because those genes that are controlling growth and development and the laying down of the central nervous system up to about age 30 or so, and then the uh, continued reinforcement of that CNS when we're thinking about the emergence of self and personality and therefore decision-making, which can lead to uh, longevity or sudden death, for example, when people make uh, mortal mistakes. So natural selection, as it turns out, the theory of natural selection, there's no place in it that says that there's a process of elimination of genes that promote early life survival, but incongruously could also promote late life survival. In fact, tends, what tends to happen is if there is a selection process that for genes that need to be removed during early life, they're removed because of alterations in their expression, or they are modified because of insertion of DNA during recombination that can lead to their interruption or disruption and the lack of that particular allele of that particular gene. So gene dosage has an effect. Copy number variation has an effect over time. And if that is a um, something selected for in the early stages of human development, such as getting ready for the reproductive phase, then why would it be that those same genes would not be necessary later on in life if they were eliminated early on? Because let's say of overstimulation of pro-inflammatory cytokines, too much autoimmune response too early in the lifespan of the human can lead to diseases, which would then not benefit the reproduction level of that individual. So we said that that's called antagonistic pleiotropy. And it's one of the concepts we have about why there is aging. Okay? Now, I said all that to remind you, hopefully you do remember that. Now I want to give you an idea of what I call epigenetic associations. Now I'm going to be using some terms here that sound a lot like um, biological associations in nature. So by epigenetic associations, I think of changes in the genome that result in epigenetic phenomena that can have either a severe harm to the host or none at all, or maybe benefit the expression pattern of one epigenome over another, even in a, a short period of time, that is in a diurnal fluctuation because of changes in environment, either environment that is directly linked to where the human is residing or an environment that's associated with internal changes uh, linked, for example, to the learning process or to the development of skeletal muscle or to specific fine-tuning and accuracy 
of muscle tone in association, let's say, with learning how to become a, a pianist or learning how to do pipetting in the molecular biology biochemistry laboratory. These are all phenomena that shape the peripheral and central nervous systems. Therefore, there are epigenetic modifications based on the signatures of changes in the acetylome and methylome and ubiquitinolome, et cetera, et cetera, that lead to changes in gene expression that benefit the phenotypic expression of whatever that given mechanism is, it plays out in how the individual develops over time to develop, develop a skill set, say, in a given profession. Now, <clears throat> you can also think about the fact that there's a closeness of association between or among different epigenetic patterns. Remember, epigenetic phenomenon, <clears throat> there is a reading of it, there is a writing of it, and there is a deletion of it. So we can repeal epigenetic changes. So we can write into the epigenome by, let's say, changing a methylation pattern of a CPG island uh, that is directly proximal to the expression of a really important suite of genes, maybe even those genes which themselves act as transcription factors, such as I'm thinking about like how we alter the lineage of T cells when we go through the T helper cell or T effector cell lineages. And we talked about all those different transcription factors and how they play a role in giving us the modular T cell subfamilies because those transcription factors then alter the expression of all the downstream genes necessary to give us, for example, a Th1 or a Th17 or a T regulatory cell or a cytotoxic T cell or a natural killer cell. When we go back to way back to CD4, CD8 selection processes, for example, in the limb uh, or in the thymus, way back to the thymus. Right? Same thing happens, of course, because of recombination phenomenon linked to the T-cell receptor and recombination, of course, linked to the production of the immunoglobulins and B-cell. So these act as immune pathways, of course, controlling the um, advancement of, say, a pathogen or perhaps a tumor. Um, But not only does that occur, remember that these same epigenetic phenomena and immune phenomena because of the existence of microglia and the infiltration of T lymphocytes, for example, directly through the blood-brain barrier as we age, those modifications are also occurring in the central nervous system. And it's the central nervous system that we notice uh, most evidently changing as people age, particularly when they get very elderly, because portions of their memory start to disappear and ultimately their self what starts to disappear, right? So that transcendental phenomenon, the, the means by which the self was organized throughout life starts to starts to break down. And part of that has to do with how the immune system sculpted the CNS over space and time and whether or not those changes um, maintain high fidelity or whether or not that fidelity in midlife is still something that needs to be maintained when people get older. And I'm thinking here about either the underrepresentation of an immune response, let's say a lymphocytic immune response because of an invading virus or bacterium, or the overrepresentation of that phenomenon, which can lead to an autoimmune disease and indeed even 
um, a hyperimmune response, which uh, some people link to the production of certain glycoproteins that are secreted that are called cytokines or even chemokines and growth factors, and that that can lead to a um, hyperimmune response, which can kill the host. Uh, because of the inappropriate deployment of those immune um, factors. So getting back to these epigenetic associations, then I think you'll allow me to say that you can think about a symbiosis of multiple epigenomes, which is essentially an association among different gene expression patterns. And these gene expression patterns can be called epigenomes. Now, remember, I told you that you can write into the epigenome and you can also erase the epigenome. And then the reading phenomenon that is used utilizing the epigenome to, uh, to the uh, context of changing gene expression, which will lead to real-time changes and also long-term changes, because you know epigenetic uh, modifications can be transferred after mitosis. Um, and even there's some suggestion after meiosis that you get the idea now that what I'm describing is a dynamic, and that's what we're looking for, event ontologies, because that's what l life is. Life is an event ontology, not a substance ontology. So you have to think about all this changing regularly over space-time, but but that regular change is not something that is linear, although there is a teleology to it, and that is the survival of the organism. But because of free will and because the human makes decisions and judgments throughout his or her life, those decisions also direct and redirect gene expression. We talked about this also in the past um, in my discussions of uh, instance, right? So. You have a parasitism, which could be a unilateral benefit um, linked to epigenomic expression patterns. You can have a commensalism where epigenomic gene expression, um, one, one pathway will have no direct impact on another pathway, perhaps because it's in a different cell lineage or there's some subcellular zonation, for example, glycolysis uh, occurring in certain cell lineages of hepatocytes and not occurring in certain cell lineages, for example, of the uh, T lymphocytes. And then those T lymphocytes spending more of the beta oxidation pathway for fatty acids uh, to generate NADH and FADH for ATP synthesis. Remember, we talked a lot about that. Those kinds of molecular signatures are played out at the epigenetic level and then all the way down at the biochemical pathway level. So you have a parasitism, which can be considered roughly a unilateral benefit where one epigenome is benefiting over another and whether or not that will cross over into the aging, the actual um, time signature of aging process, the chronicity of it. Remember we talked about clock genes too throughout these lectures. Well, of course, depend on what genes are uh, being expressed, what the epigenome is. Commensalism I already explained, where you can have multiple lineages of epigenomes that change over time, which have little interaction with one another, at least not the kind of interaction that can lead to uh, a brick wall or an open sea. You can have mutualism of epigenomes where there's a reciprocal benefit. 
So again, you can have benefit of the two epigenomes where only one epigenome tends to benefit the organism at a, at a different age, at a given age of that person. Or you could have an epigenome that favors a, a, an age that is going on through the chronicity. That is, as one ages, for example, decreasing the amount of reactive oxygen species that are generated because of the uh, plenum of mutations that have resulted from previous reactive oxygen species accumulating and then the lack or the slowing of the removal of them because of the ascorbic acid to coferol and ADPH levels, glutathione levels, which will tend to remove those reactive oxygen. Remember, reactive oxygen is important in controlling, say, pathogen invasion. And it, we've also discussed how reactive oxygen can lead to alterations in the genome, which induces repair, and that repair itself can become faulty. Uh, and when it becomes faulty, that can lead to the increase of mutation in a cell population once the triggers are removed for decreasing programmed cell death, right? And that has to do with cell cycle arrest and cell cycle control. Remember that that's also related to reactive oxygen. So you, reactive oxygen isn't always toxic. In fact, it's often very useful because not only some of those mutations are uh, a positive effect because they can lead to epigenetic changes, which can be beneficial if they're selected for and they produce a correct phenotype or behavior. But also the whole idea that reactive oxygen itself um, is, is a component of this whole process of regulating all of the pathways because reactive oxygen at some level is necessary because of that unpaired electron to generate, for example, tyrosyl radicals or lipoperoxy radicals, which are important for further modifications. In one case, for example, for um, uh, RNA reductase, right? Ribonucleotide reductase needs a tyrosyl radical in order to be able to make um, deoxyribonucleic acids from ribonucleic acids. Remember that process, I talked about that. Um, but also for lipid peroxy uh, production, to generate membrane rafts to alter the presentation of receptors on the cell surface, which then will regulate communication among different cellular lineages. All right, so I hope you're getting where I'm, where I'm going to here. This is basically looking at epigenetic modifications, and I'm layering that together with my discussion of the immune response, which of course it is intimately linked. So we can ask the question, <clears throat> can the immune response itself be involved in the genesis and the maintenance and even the networking of the central nervous system? And then of course, by association, the peripheral nervous system. So we need to know whether or not we can understand at the level of a stress-induced immunological tailoring of the CNS and the PNS that is ultimately linked to the overall survival of the individual human as he ages and what kinds of diseases can potentially drive through that process and those diseases themselves, particularly things like cardiovascular disease that's linked to obesity 
or oncogenesis, which can be linked to obesity, or maybe starvation can be linked to uh, enough of a modification of the um, depot fat that there isn't enough fine-tuning control on gluconeogenesis, which can also lead to a pleiotropic effect and a decline in the quality of life and indeed even death, right? We can think about anoxia. We can think about alterations in the movement of oxygen in the blood, hemoglobin expression levels, glycans generating uh, glycosylated hemoglobin, decreasing the affinity of oxygen for the, and therefore transport in red blood cells. All of this, of course, is linked to metabolism, right? So everything is interconnected, but remember it's the epigenome because you can write into it, you need to read it, you need, in other words, it needs to be expressed, and it can be erased, right? And so because of that, this is a dynamic that isn't um, easily tracked during a lifespan of a person because these epigenetic changes can occur in a very short amount of time. And therefore, with, we don't have the kind of uh, uh, labs that we can find subtle differences in epigenomic patterning of gene expression when we're studying, say, a particular morbidity in a person that's under a physician's care, right? So you understand how that process can be missed, that the epigenetic process itself, and therefore the epigenome that's generated from it can be missed. Now, to remind you something about the cell's immune system, uh, I want you to understand that it's a very complex lineage of cells. From the bone, you get a hemopoietic stem cell, which can generate what's called a multipotential stem cell. And that can lead to lymphoid progenitor cells, and that will lead to T lymphocytes and dendritic cells and B lymphocytes and NK cells, natural killer cells. But you also have, from the multipotential stem cell, the, uh, and then subsequently, the myeloid progenitor cells, which will lead to monocytes and macrophages, erythrocytes, eosinophils, basophils and mast cells, megakaryocytes, and platelets and neutrophils. So this is just a general outlining of the cell lineages that we need to uh, adapt under our aegis of a developmental and super dynamic process which is the aging lineage of the immune system um, interacting with the epigenome, altering gene expression, and therefore all of the biochemical pathways that either control or provide energy for these alterations, such as changing from beta oxidation to glycolysis to amino acid utilization in T lymphocytes, and therefore generating the different T cell populations and subpopulations, all the way to thinking about some of these cell lineages in the immune system, um, in, in uh, acquiring a negative phenotype by their insertion into the arterial wall. We talked about this, the generation of foam cells because of fatty acid oxidation and because of oxysterol production leading to atherosclerosis, right? And that's just one pathophysiology, right? You know that we have so many we've discussed here authentic biochemistry. And I'm not throwing these at you um, because I want you to uh, become uh, 
a, a, a student that thinks that everything is so complicated and therefore it cannot be understood. I'm giving this to you because I want you to always remind yourself that even for someone who studied this their whole life, like someone like me, your biochemistry professor, it is a very complex system. But complex systems can be described. It doesn't mean that we can fully appreciate how this whole complex system functions in real time as a dynamic system. But it does mean that we can get various handles on the process. And that's what we're trying to do here by generating a dialectical analysis of the event ontology of living systems. In particular, we're focusing on the aging process then. So I'm going to leave you with that. This is just the beginning of a series of lectures now where I'm going to go do a very deep dive on my theory about how the immune system sculpts the central nervous system, uh, as well as subsequent and also collinear with the peripheral nervous system, and how this will then allow us to completely um, generate that foundation to move forward to understand the epigenetic modifications that occur during the aging process of the human, leading ultimately to an over uh, production of morbid systems that cannot be overcome uh, because of safeguards and ultimately that morbidity leading to mortality and therefore the end of aging death. So it's Dr. Dan Guerra from Authentic Biochemistry Studios, hoping that you um, learn something today from the lecture. And um, I'm going to say on this 18th of April, 2021, uh, bye for now.